0: welcome to the fabric a podcast from lobby capital in this podcast we explore the people we back the people we work with and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs but instead a combination of past experiences relationships serendipity and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. We are here today with Jeff Cole, co-founder and CEO of Hidden Level. It's great to have Jeff as our first guest on our inaugural Lobby Capital podcast. Jeff, thanks for joining.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Glad to be a part of it. Hidden Level is a portfolio company of Lobby Capital. In fact, it was our second investment out of our inaugural fund. We are thrilled to be involved. We led the Series A financing. Before that, Jeff and company had raised a seed financing. And uh, so we're going to have a fantastic conversation. And as I've shared with you, Jeff, purpose of the podcast is really to you know understand the fabric of the entrepreneur. So we'll talk a bit about Hidden Level and what you're doing and how it's going to change the world. But really, the bulk of the conversation is going to be oriented around you and your co-founders and your backgrounds and sort of what motivated you, what experiences you've had in the past that sort of have shaped you, and really try to understand who is this entrepreneur and, and sort of what makes him tick. So... With that as a start, what I was hoping we could start with is just share just the elevator pitch on Hidden Level.
1: Yeah, so Hidden Level, what we're focused on doing is bringing cutting-edge, low-altitude surveillance data for the purposes of air traffic management and security that we own and maintain kind of like the cell towers to the cell industry. And then we sell that data to just an array of different customers, like I said, from everything from airports to security around stadiums, power grid, government facilities, kind of the whole aspect of it. We call it our airspace monitoring service. So we'll talk a little bit more about my background and sort of the sensor side of it, but um, had a great deal of knowledge in building some very advanced sensor technology for surveillance purposes. And then my background in air traffic management, we kind of Combine the idea to build this infrastructure that we own and maintain.
0: Fantastic. We absolutely are going to dig into that. But you know, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? Tell us a
1: little bit about your family life. So, um, actually, grew up in Syracuse, where Hidden Levels is based out of. My mother was in real estate, and my father was a business executive, a sales executive at Carrier. Funny enough, my grandfather was a mechanical engineer, and grew up with my grandfather living with us. He lived with us for years, as mm. my grandmother had. Past actually, when I was really little, people always ask. Like, it's kind of interesting because I have a, a background in sales and engineering, and it was really just sort of who I grew up with, with right. my grandpa and my dad being there. Like, started getting excited about taking things apart when I was a little kid. And my my grandfather was a big watch collector, and he would hand me like old broken pocket watches and hmm. be like, "All right, we're gonna take it apart and put it back together. Let's see if we can make it work, or we're gonna take one that's working and take it apart and hopefully we can make it work." <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, my dad was really successful in his sales career and similarly my mom as well selling real estate. So it was just kind of unique. But I really enjoyed growing up here in upstate. We have all the seasons, you know, grew up skiing and playing soccer and basketball and football with all my friends and everything. So it was was just a really good time.
0: So Jeff, how did the family end up in Syracuse? Is this a multi-generational family in Syracuse, New York? Or do you know sort of how the family ultimately arrived in Syracuse before you were born?
1: Yeah. So my dad grew up here. My great-grandfather also kind of lived in the area. So interestingly enough, my grandfather and my great-grandfather both went to Cornell for engineering. My dad, I'll say, went the opposite direction and was like, hey, you know, I like engineering. I like this, but I really have a business knack and went to business school. My mom grew up in Auburn, which is probably I don't know about an hour west of Syracuse actually and uh, she came to Syracuse working for Campbell's and then my mom and dad met and then my mom got into real estate and you know that's kind of all she wrote and how I came about
0: all right so now skipping forward you know college and what did you study and where did you study and how did you decide to go to that school
1: yeah so I uh, I went to the University of Buffalo as a kid had a really a mechanical knack always like I said taking apart watches playing with Lincoln Logs building Legos Uh, you know, robots with connects and stuff like that. And I said, all right, well, I understand kind of the hardware side of it, but I want to learn how to write the software behind it. So I went to UB for computer science and they actually have a a program that you can do where you can kind of focus on computer science and computer engineering and do both at the same time and, and ultimately get like a minor in math if you take enough math, which I ended up doing. So it was kind of neat. I actually got to learn all the software side of it and more on the hardware side, and, and really what brought me to UB was they actually have a supercomputer there that's quite powerful. They do a lot of processing. And one of the professors, was really big into cars, which is something I've always been really big into. Hmm. And he would work with Joe Gibbs Racing, which at that time had J.J. Yealy, Denny Hamlin, and Tony Stewart on the team. And I was like, all right, this sounds pretty cool. Maybe I'll I'll go into this field and write software for race cars. And I actually did an internship with them before ultimately kind of going down the
0: direction that I did. That's neat. And then you graduated from University of Buffalo, and your first job out of school was...
1: Yeah, my first job out of school, I ended up going to a smaller company that was focused around building computers for military and also for the health industry. And I started writing embedded software and drivers for certain pieces of hardware that the military needed. And I was there for a short period of time. The company was called Seneca Data. It was like right across the street from SRC, who I ended up working Mm. for a little later. And then I had a friend over at Census who was like, hey, I know you love like cars and planes. He's like, what do you think about coming over here? We're growing like crazy. So I went over and interviewed and loved the group and ultimately went over to Census where I spent the majority of the beginning of my career, the first five years or so working on air traffic management systems like ASDX, Aerobon, MIGs, kind of all the fun, exciting things around enabling air traffic management. So it was a lot of fun.
0: Ah, that was the insemination of the interest. And and you mentioned an interest in cars and planes at that time. Talk a little bit about the plane side of it, because I think that helps also shape kind of where you took your career.
1: Yeah. So as a kid, playing with watches and other types of things, it kind of naturally led me into RC cars, So there's a store here. I I actually don't know if it's still around, but it was called Walt's Hobby and my grandpa and my dad used to take me there all the time. And we started with little slot cars, which are like these little electric cars that go on these old tracks and you race them around and to building indoor cars and outdoor dirt cars. And then it kind of went to the next level of, well, I want to fly a plane. So we started getting into RC planes and RC helicopters, which is an expensive hobby if you happen to uh, crash, which happens often when you're starting. But uh, that was where it kind of came from. And my dad was actually in the Air Force. So he used to work on airplanes and bring me to air shows and walk me around and be like, you know, that was one I used to work on and talk a lot about them. And that was kind of where my affinity for flight and interest really uh, started.
0: It's really interesting, too. You know, you and I were introduced by Adam Bree, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sky Skydio and RC airplanes was sort of a big part of his upbringing as well. I had not even realized until I had met him that that was a competitive sport and, and, and a very competitive sport, not just sort of a hobby. And he shared with me you know, the type of vehicles that they fly around. They're not little. They're, no. These are these are these can be large aircraft. Pretty fascinating culture there. So you were at Senses, you were sort of, you know, spread your wings for five years. That was probably your first exposure to air traffic management. And talk a little bit about, to the extent you can, the the projects there and how they shaped sort of the visibility into this marketplace and sort of the need for, you know, ever improving resolution at low altitude.
1: Yeah, when I got into the air traffic business, I knew that you know air traffic safety was taken extremely serious here in the U.S., but I didn't realize just to the extent, the amount of time and effort and requirements and development that goes into the types of solutions that they use. And Census, which is now Saab U.S., was really kind of a small entity that fell into a great opportunity. They pitched this idea of multilateration, which primarily in the past, the air traffic management was done using high-powered radar systems. And they said, well, we can build and deploy this multilateration system that can do secondary surveillance. They would call like verification and validation that the radar targets were where they said they are and it produced like kind of the false alarms that you would get from potential radar or an in inclement weather when you might lose something. And Census actually won that contract, and it's a program record still active. They're deployed at all the major airports throughout the U.S. And what that system, ASDX, does is it's a situational awareness tool for kind of monitoring inbound, outbound craft, and craft on the ground. It does everything from the transition from the apron region, which is kind of the gate area out to the taxiing to inbound outbound flights. And that allows the air traffic controllers to be notified of potential what they would call safety logic alerts. Like we have a a plane taxiing across a runway when if it continues, it will collide with a plane that's taking off or landing.
0: So it had some sort of predictive trajectory on the sort of vehicles as they were moving around and they could anticipate, oh, this looks like it has a high probability of impact. So let's redirect it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that kind of really taught me just how just complex it all gets. I mean, there's so many other tools that are involved. This was just a small piece of it. And through my time there, I got to work on a a whole lot of programs, but I was always impressed by just how much effort and how many hands kind of went into verification, validation of the requirements. The testing of these systems is very rigid. And that kind of all fed into ultimately hidden level when I'm thinking about the type of solution and the capability and the resilience of the type of solution that would be required to do this. I have a great deal of knowledge and experience just working in that in the past.
0: You know, it's interesting when you talk about being the program of record and a lot of folks are unfamiliar with that black box of selling systems to government or selling systems to government agencies or government facilities. And here's census, you know, small little company doing something, you know, that impacts a major component of of daily transportation you know, how involved in those early sales and, and sort of that customer management process were you and what did you learn there that sort of helped guide you as you've moved your career forward?
1: So starting there, I, you know, I started as an engineer, but really took to the interest of the business side of it. Yeah. And when I came on, they had already won the program record at that point, okay. which for those listeners who don't know what that means, it's a program that's generally funded anywhere from 30 to 40 years as a federal line item in the budget, whether that's a Department of Defense acquisition, or, or like in this case, the uh, FAA's
0: acquisition. It's the ultimate long-term contract. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? If, if you're talking about something that's human safety, you don't want to change it all the time. Like you want to pick a vendor that you expect to have longevity and is going to be able to deliver the capability that you want. However, during my time there, my boss's boss actually realized that I, I had a sort of a business knack and interest and would bring me along to proposals and pitches to the FAA on we're going to pitch runway status lights or this what they call precision runway management alternate, which was a very expensive radar system. And we were trying to propose an alternate solution, which was using MLAT instead of this really expensive radar solution. And I really got to see how it worked and what's involved in the process and getting to know the different folks and, you know, starting to work on proposal writing and, and sort of just the whole end to end process. And it really perked my interest in kind of going down that path ultimately of, of business side of it, business development.
0: And, you know, one of the things that businesses that are highly reliant upon government as customers get criticized for is you know the inefficiency or sort of the unpredictability of contract selection or vendor selection. Mm-hmm. Did you see any of that? Did you sort of get discouraged by the process or did you get alternatively encouraged that it's actually quite efficient and that the cream does rise to the top. But I'm curious sort of what your learnings were
1: Yeah, I'll say it's complex. (laughs) It's complex. (laughs) Um, Good answer. I saw good parts and bad parts of it. There's sometimes you see a program that's awarded and you might scratch your head and you see other times where, you know, it is the best of breed solution, but it's not always just about the best solution. It's also the best solution with the right company. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I saw when working there that I think was very important takeaway was... There was an immense amount of the group that was always trying to strive into new aspects of the business, whether or not that was international air traffic management or oh, well, we're working with the FAA, but the airlines have a lot of issues managing their aircraft in the gates. I mean, how many times have you landed early and you hear that horrible call over the announcement, they're not ready for us? (laughs)
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to sit here on the tarmac for a half hour while they figure out which gate to...
1: Exactly, yeah. Um, You know, stuff like that. And there was a great deal of folks that were said, we need to diversify. We can't just rely on one thing. And that's something in my career I have seen and worked with companies that do that, that just rely on one thing. And that, that is dangerous because just because you have a programmer record doesn't mean it's a guarantee. It means you're pretty well set. But if you're not performing, it can be rebid and they do run out eventually. So that was something I learned that was important was just diversifying the company and capabilities.
0: It's great. So you were at Census for five years, and then at some point you sort of decided to make the next move. And and the next move, as I recall, is SRC. Talk a little bit about, you know, your state of mind at that time, why you made the move, what you were looking to accomplish as your next stage in your career.
1: Yeah, I'll be totally honest. It was an interesting time at Census. So Census had two divisions, their air traffic and their defense side of the house. And this is one of those scenarios where you talk about the downsides to that type of business the defense house had gone all in on trying to win a very big program called three dealer they built a really advanced radar in a ridiculous time frame and i got to work on some aspects of the tracker was when i was learning that which was exciting but it more or less almost bankrupted the company Hmm. they won it and then it was protested and then they lost it And, and this was kind of the ugly side of that business where you win this thing you've worked so hard for, which takes years, but if it gets protested, it can be tied up for more years and you don't have money coming in. And through that process, it kind of put Census in a, in a difficult position, which forced them into a sale to Saab. And actually, I had no qualms. Actually, I was pretty excited when Saab came in. They had really big vision. They're a huge air traffic provider, they build airplanes as well. So it was really exciting. However, In Syracuse, there's a whole bunch of these types of engineering companies right next to each other. You've got Lockheed Martin, SRC, Saab, Alliant. And anytime there's kind of blood in the water, they feed off of each other. And uh, a lot of people knew Census had some great talent, and I had a lot of friends over at SRC, and they were going like gangbusters over there. They had just won a couple programmer records. So they were just knocking on people's doors, and I just said, all right, you know, let me go see what this is all about. And they made me an offer I just couldn't
0: refuse. So I was like, all right, (laughs) Uh, I love this, but I'm going to go get something else to try. You know, it's interesting. I had not realized what a brain trust in sort of radar the Syracuse marketplace is. You grew up in the area, you sort of have seen the wonderful science that's emerged, you know, both from industry and from the university there. But maybe just let's take a little sidetrack for a second, just fill in the listeners on the unique resources that are in and around the Syracuse area.
1: Yeah, it it all started with uh, Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin, you know, G.E., They got licenses back in the day to transmit high-powered radar systems that would be really hard to do nowadays, like authorizations, what they call frequency authorizations, and they started building out, really, it's a campus. It's like the size of a college campus, right, in kind of the center of Syracuse. And through that, over the years... Other entities have just, you know, folks kind of like where like me, who've started Hidden Level, left and said, "I, I'm going to start something." That's actually how Judd Gostin left that group to start Census. SRC, not quite the spinoff like that. SRC actually came out of Syracuse University. It used to be called Syracuse Research Corporation. And that company is over 60 years old now, I think. And during, I think it was the Vietnam War, when SRC started doing a little more defense-related work, the university and, and them kind of said, hey, we, we're going to go in different directions. But through the drive and development of these really different unique high-powered radar systems from Lockheed and other companies, you've gotten companies like and microwave who are here that build things right in our backyard all kinds of really high-end mechanical development houses where if you need certain things done they're all kind of all around this area and through that the colleges that are nearby kind of catered to this type of engineering you've got clarkson rit rpi syracuse university all pretty close university of buffalo oswego and they would really tailor a lot of the engineering around RF software, DSP firmware. So all those companies I had mentioned, they just kind of peel people out of those universities left and right. That's kind of like where they go to.
0: All right. Then back to sort of the evolution of Jeff Cole's career. He, <laughs> he got this offer that he couldn't refuse to sort of join SRC. And I'm sneaking into kind of the evolution of the low altitude detection system and ultimately hidden level, but sort of talk us through you join SRC and? Yeah. So the thing that got me with SRC was they said,
1: Hey, we want to put you into our business development team as well. So you're going to get to kind of work with closely with our business development team on emerging markets. And that was exciting. So funny enough, I went over there, but worked a lot of my time with intelligence customers, but also did a lot of business development on other sides of just, what else can we use this technology for? And uh, you know, obviously my background in air traffic management, they said, hey, we have this radar called the LCMR. And we're thinking about a variant called the L Star, which is a variant of that system for air traffic purposes or detection of drones, ultralights, just aircraft in general. And I get to spend a lot of time meeting different customers, everything from people that had problems with airplanes flying over wind turbines to actually Google and Disney, who had actually reached out and Disney was just kind of curious on the state of detection of drones as drones were starting to become a thing. And at that time, we had been heavily involved in it with our government and military customers. It had been a problem for a while. And Google said, we want to deliver defibrillators with drones. And I was like, what? Um, they're like yeah you know we think we can outfit a drone to drop a defibrillator to a person in distress and save lives and I was like wow that's that's pretty crazy that's pretty cool (laughs) it's a unique uh, use case it is and that's actually when I first met Adam and we kind of bonded over his excitement about RC planes he's a pilot like none other like I'm definitely not on the same level of his stunt piloting capabilities but I enjoy flying them and we both were really big into cycling so we kind of really hit it off just talking about cycling and RC and learning more about what Google wanted to do. And that kind of set off this little light bulb in my head or just there's this whole emerging market of man, the FAA has really thought a lot about general aviation, but now it's going to get really complex when you're talking about the amount of drones that could deliver defibrillators or medicine or organs or just food. And then there was the Jetson era, people talking about putting people inside bigger drones and air taxis. I was like, wow, this is going to get really complex in a hurry. So that's kind of where all of this all started and came from. But it's definitely an interesting path to stumbling into these folks that wanted to do different things. With drones and had different concerns.
0: You know, one of the criticisms that larger tech companies, in particular government contractors, get is their rigidity or their inability to move quickly to changing market dynamics. So here you are at SRC, one of the, you know, arguably the leading detection purveyor with a great, you know, set of relationships up and down Washington. And so why not stay there? Why not, you know, continue to sort of enjoy the market? dominance and and sort of exploit that. What was the catalyst for thinking outside the box? Why couldn't that happen within, you know, your prior employer? Yeah, it's a great question.
1: And it's something that I don't think a lot of people think about or realize is when you're building technology like that, it has a lot of sensitivities to our own national security and and getting into the wrong hands, which is Mm which drives our export regulations and laws, so things like ITAR and EAR. And through my efforts with working with Disney and Google, I'd spent a great deal of time talking with folks at the Pentagon, folks within what they call Tri-Services and RDDTC, which is around export, and really saying, hey, we have these commercial applications and users, like, can we repurpose? Can we redesign? And what I learned was a very important life lesson at that point was it's really hard to go from a defense contractor to the commercial business versus being a commercial entity who sells to the defense industry or the government. That is a much easier way to go than the other way. I'd spent a great deal of time working with those folks, doing some really fun things from flying drones, trying to crash them into each other and using data, our type of data at that time to keep them uh, avoiding one another. To ultimately find out you can't move forward because this technology is too close to something that's very important to our national security. So watching... Google literally crash drones on a daily basis and just throw money at building new ones and engineering. Oh, we need this. They'd go find the best person. I was like, wow, this is how engineering can be done.
0: That rate of iteration. Yeah.
1: That's what triggered it, really, is like, go commercial to go faster.
0: And there's two things that you mentioned that I think would be fascinating to delve into. One is the challenges of sort of going from a defense contractor to commercial. I think there's a lot of intuition that kind of sort of leaps to mind as to why, but it'd be helpful to kind of maybe drill in a little bit. When you are structured as a defense contractor, talk to us a little bit about what are the impediments of then selling a commercial? And I'd start by saying, you know, the whole support organization is probably oriented around a large organization where everything is mission critical, which means it's less about sort of cost efficiency and more about quality. I assume that would be sort of one thing, but maybe, you know, share your thoughts.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's not always necessarily like just cost efficiency. The quality of product that you can produce commercially versus in defense contractor can be very similar, but the cost to build it is a lot more just due to the nature of process. Um, when you're a defense contractor, there's a lot of process that's involved, which comes with a lot of money. You could build the same product as a commercial entity and have the same type of reliability and quality. You just wouldn't have all of the verification and checks and balances that are required. And some of those might be in, in some way or shape or form, I think a little too much, but it's just the way it's always been done. So it's really. Building is a defense contractor that is very expensive um, versus a commercial entity.
0: My impression is that the pace of product deployment, the pace of product support, you know, sort of the customer success aspect of the business is a different animal as well. Do you agree with that?
1: It is. You know, if you're a true defense contractor and you're building sensors like we were doing, you're not trying to come up with a solution for them. You're waiting for them to tell you what their problem is, and then you come up with a solution. Mm -hmm. Where in the commercial sector, people have big ideas Good ones, bad ones, but big ideas, and you just take a swing. But as a defense contractor, you're waiting for them to say, This is my problem,
0: give me a solution. Yep. When we were first looking at the opportunity to invest in hidden level, I shared with them, you know, my sort of interpretation of the evolution of the process where you were at SRC, they sort of had this low altitude detection service. It was selling well into sort of the government. And you had some ideas for A, how to bring it to the commercial sector, and B, how to sort of you know make it better, faster, cheaper, and the receptivity to cannibalizing the existing business by moving engineering resources sort of off into this new direction and cannibalizing some of the sales momentum by sort of allocating resources to sort of this new vertical commercial which was just not as warmly received as, you know, classic entrepreneurs would want. Right. And thus, you know, the the need and the reason to leave the business. You know, it is never easy to sort of leave a place that I know you cared deeply about and helped grow, but you did it with such elegance. Talk a little bit about that process and maybe some lessons learned along that path. Sure, yeah. For
1: just like a little bit of context and the storyline, when we started working with Google, the government said, look, you can't do this as just our entity, And and I helped stand up a wholly owned subsidiary of SRC called Griffin, which was Griffin SRC, where we built technology for commercial purpose, but always it had other defense aspects to it that was ultimately kind of the end goals. And, and honestly, muddying the two made things very difficult really for us to scale the business, as you had mentioned. And that's when I said, look, to truly scale this, we have to do this differently. And that company was reacquired by SRC. But one of the things of growing that company and learning a lot about the commercial business and, and for the first time hiring all these different folks One of the things that when I knew it was going back over was I wanted to make sure everyone kind of landed softly and found the right home within Mm -hmm. SRC or outside of there. And it also put me in a different position as I was one of the founders of that company, basically had a lot of the big ideas to kind of stand it up. And when it was all happening, I wasn't really afraid to kind of go nose to nose with the highest level of executives and say, look, I think we've built something great here and I'm willing to buy it from you. And that's actually how, you know, you and I kind of started to first meet was what would it look like to buy the company out. And, you know, through that process, I said, look, I'm very grateful for all the years and the experience that I've developed here in in the relationships. But ultimately, I want to continue to spread my wings. But I learned a lot about the positive and negatives of those times, what can happen and and saw, unfortunately, some relationships with some folks go really bad um, and other ones really flourish. Um, There was a lot of change when that happened, you know, for us and for them as well. But ultimately, I'm really happy with how everything went because it's, what led us to Hidden Level and meeting you and so many other great folks and really truly
0: unlocking the potential of, of our team. That's great. So let's let's talk about, Jeff, the, that journey. You decided to leave SRC and maybe you can talk a little bit about you know how you got the company up and running and sort of the fundraising and bringing on the team and getting them comfortable that they actually are going to get paychecks, those kinds of good things.
1: Yeah, I'll say when we left, I convinced a whole bunch of really great engineers that were really well paid to to leave and, and get no money. <laughs> but I, we had this this vision and this idea that they really believed in. And uh, I said, look, we can do this. Uh, I said, I almost guarantee you the day we leave, the amount of people that are going to call and just be like, what are you guys doing this? Like, how can we work with you? Like, this is this wild. We haven't seen something like this in a long time. And when we actually all left, we had a great deal of opportunity to sort of fall into our lap with some contracting. And I said, all right, uh, I'm going to go learn this venture capital fundraising thing. And you guys go make a little bit of money so we don't have to live on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and water. That was actually <laughs> how we started and truly in a basement. Um, <laughs> and the journey has been, you know, really incredible. I, you were one of the first people I met in this process uh, when I picked up the phone and called Adam and said, Hey, we're gonna go out and and do what kind of what you did. (laughs) Like who do we need to talk to? And I met you and and so many others and Tom Moss and and some of the early folk um, that that really jumped in in the beginning. And we do these um, lunch meetings where we pick a topic. And I did a topic on fundraising just recently. And I describe it as uh, a spider web. The degrees of separation are pretty pretty narrow with investors. And when you find your way to the web, you really need to just glom onto it and ride the momentum. And... Hmm. I very much remember the very first check when Adam and Tom called me and said, yeah, we're going to write you a check. We're, we're in. And then Perkins came in and, and others, and it just kind of took off from there. And you know, watching investors kind of make sense of it to me, like picking up the phone and calling these other investors and, and saying, like, these are the people you need to talk to. And putting myself out there, doing pitch nights in front of 40 different investors, Having good days, bad days, realizing that the majority of the time people are there to tell you no, but don't give up. Yeah. You know, keep pushing. It's a fun adventure.
0: It is a kissing frogs game. And it's funny when I try to synthesize all of the things that we look for when making a decision. It's a, it's an exhaustive list. It makes you realize why we say no, you know, 99 out of 100 times. But we didn't say no to this one. We really like this opportunity. And you bring in these the pieces of the puzzle. You know, it's, it's you start with one piece, you add another. So, the, you know, first was your idea and your ambition, then sort of the team. And then you raised a little bit of seed capital. And you got some of these contracting relationships to sort of, you know, sort of self propel or self fund the business for a period of time you know eventually you sort of you know got some some really pivotal or really foundational resources you know but there are human capital elements that that came on board. And I've been so impressed with the board of directors of this company. Maybe share a little bit about how you've thought about architecting the board and then how you actually were able to recruit some of the resources that you have on there.
1: Yeah, so I'll kind of circle back and then step right into that is something that was different about this. As I said, we need to prove to the venture capital world and to people we want to work with that we are validated as being some of the best and brightest in this. And when we went out and started raising... I said right away, I said to some of my old friends in the intelligence world, hey, you know what we're doing. Would you like to invest? Bringing in Lockheed Martin, who, Mm -hmm. you know, really validated, like, why is this monstrous company investing in this little 16-person company in Syracuse that arguably works in some of the same vein? Um, And it was because of, like, who we are and what we're capable of. And through that, I said, we needed a board of directors that also was what I've always said. and, and And I will say this isn't a shot at the venture capital world, but you should really have a board that is functional and useful. Yes. Not just a board. And I've seen companies where there's just like a board. And I think we've brought on a great deal of advisors and, and great top people. Everyone from, you know, yourself being on our board to Joel being on our board too, from Pipeline Capital to our first independent, Suzanne Spaulding, who's the former undersecretary to DHS. I mean, she doesn't take board seats just because it has to be something she believes in. You know, She was someone who helped stand up CISA, who was responsible under DHS for critical national security as a whole. And she saw what we're doing as very unique and very exciting and said, I want to be a part of this, you know, not only from her career working in DHS, but also CIA prior. She saw what we're doing as very beneficial and this company and the solution as something she wanted to put her name alongside of to then getting folks like William Kral, the former deputy director of the NSA. He heard about us as actually also Bluey as an investor, and they brought him in to evaluate us. And then he said, I'd love to work with you guys. you know, And that was just kind of icing on the cake of just the types of folks that believe in what we're doing to the degree where they want to give their time to help us out and work alongside of us and, and bring that notoriety. You know, meeting these folks through sort of my past and groups I've worked with and connecting through the spider web and having them join our company and what we're doing here has been just amazing.
0: You know, for other entrepreneurs out there that are listening, you know, the board construction and sort of advisory board construction is really, in my mind, a critical aspect of the business. And, you know, Jeff, we've had meetings and conversations at the board level that we don't all agree. Mm. And in fact, I would argue that some of those conversations have been the most fruitful in terms of surfacing ideas and challenging sort of the status quo and allowing you guys the ability to sort of think outside the box and, look at things from different angles, we as investors look very carefully at how the founders are constructing those resources, the board, the advisors, sort of the syndicate of investors. And it tells a lot about the entrepreneur's willingness to sort of have different perspectives and different data inputs as the entrepreneur is overseeing and growing the business uh, or steering the business. On the advisory side, um, you have a number of really interesting advisors. Maybe talk a little bit about how you've thought about that construction and how you're thinking about that construction because it's a never-ending quest. It's not as though you sort of slot in your advisory board and you're done. Yeah, the way I look at it
1: is I'm somebody who asks a lot of questions. I'm always trying to learn. When we first stood this up and I was saying, all right, I know a lot about this market. I know a lot about the technology. I don't know a lot about venture capital and working with investors. And Adam and I had been very close friends, and I'd become quickly very good friends with Tom and respected the businesses he's built and the success. And I said, hey, you guys could be great advisors to me from different aspects, from Adam, what it was like to leave a very successful, fruitful career at Google, to going to take a huge risk and growing a very successful company that's growing quite quickly, the challenges of Staffing and good times and bad times. Like he's been a great source to talk to. We've bounced a lot of things off of each other. To Tom, who was kind of really showing me the ropes on how the venture capital business works, to the different successes and failures in the businesses he's been a part of. You know, I thought those were critical aspects. I like to talk to people. So I talked to my advisors a lot. To uh, Guy Miesznik, who we brought on as well, who has been successful in building a commercial security business uh, that worked in both the commercial and the defense sector and went through an acquisition and also knew a lot about the ups and downs of businesses and the challenges is another source of feedback for me. So. I've seen companies where they build advisory boards that are kind of names to draw attention versus folks that bring attention, but also bring a great deal of knowledge and experience to the founders and the team. And to me, that is really the important part. It's not just a list of names that I'm paying a few dollars or something to kind of make my website look better and make us look attractive. I look for folks that are wanting to be a part of the team and really bringing something beneficial to us as well.
0: Real substance. Yeah, real substance. That's great.
1: Well, I'll add to there just similarly because you touched on it. Something I would advise anyone who's getting into this, and I I actually wrote this in my presentation I did to my team, was having a functional board. Thinking about what you want out of your board from the very beginning is really important. If you want a board that's just going to say yes and not challenge you or push you, you're going to fail because building a company is not always perfection. And the the structure of our board, and as you'd mentioned, of having open discussions and having difficult discussions makes us better. The way we've put it together, we have a great deal of amazing folks that sit on our board, folks that are also observers who bring great knowledge and feedback in all the types of discussions that we're going through. And I think it makes us much more likely to be wildly successful than not.
0: I agree. Another way I, I like to talk through this point is, Entrepreneurship really is a team sport. Yeah. I mean it starts with maybe one person's idea or two people's idea, but it ultimately to build a business it's a team sport. And if you look at all of the Phenomenal businesses that have sprung up over the last 20, 30 years. There may be one person that gets a disproportionate amount of the credit for the business, but ultimately, if you really look into those businesses, you'll see that it's all hands on deck. There's a lot of contributors, and picking those contributors and nurturing those contributors and harnessing their sort of unique insights is really what makes an entrepreneur great. I'm going to sort of move to a somewhat different topic now. You know, one of the goals of this podcast initiative is to try to help people understand the fabric of the entrepreneur, what drives different entrepreneurs, or what are the motivating things that happened in their life to kind of, you know, take the leap, build the business, be self-aware. So I, I guess first is Jeff, when you think about Hidden Level, what are the personal goals of the business for you?
1: Yeah. Personally, one of the biggest things for me was to build an engineering company where I grew up that was different than all of the defense contractors here. A place where people were excited to share ideas and really kind of spread their wings. Like, no idea is too crazy. Like, let's talk about it. You know, there's a lot of ideas that kind of just go on the dartboard but don't go anywhere. But that was a big part of it was... I wanted to build something here that talent would be excited about coming to and really having the opportunity to spread their wings and change the world in a big way. Not so hyper-focused on the mission that I was used to, which was extremely important, you know, keeping our national security, keeping our troops safe but also providing a great deal of capability and influence on the world, but also allowing engineers to really explore what their true capability is. And that was something that was highly motivating in doing this.
0: And why do you think that is? Why is that an important goal for you? What happened in your past you think that sort of, you know, influenced that?
1: I honestly I think it's my parents and my grandparents. They always said to me you can do anything you want to do. You just have to work at it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. So I've always just been kind of a huge big vision kind of person. It's honestly what excites me. When I was younger in high school, a close friend of mine passed away, and it taught me that life is short, and if you're waiting for something to happen, it can pass you by really fast. You only get one time around, make the best of it, and do the things that excite you, otherwise, you know, it could be over just like that, and and you would have missed out on your opportunities.
0: Yeah that's so true it's so true you know there's another impression i've had of you the first time we met and that is that you are truly a patriot as well i've always had that impression that there's a big part of this which is indeed to do something great for the country you know talk a little bit about you know kind of that part of your life the involvement in security safety sort of you mentioned your dad was in the air force you know that'd be super interesting to sort of hear more about that
1: yeah i've always taken a great deal of pride In working on systems and solutions that directly involve maintaining a level of safety and security that people really have grown to expect and enjoy the comfort of. From working on air traffic solutions that made our more complex airways safer every day to Working with some of the best people on, in the defense sector and intelligence sector on solving really complex problems and dealing with things that are very difficult to maintain a level of safety and security, everything from working on LCMR and Crew Duke, which is a counter IED system. You know, these were huge problems during the war. And the fact that I was able to play a small part in that, it just is very rewarding. Yeah.
0: You know, you're a competitive guy, you're an ambitious guy, you've got a strong vision for the future. And at the same time, you've also brought on some phenomenal resources. And one of the things that I believe sets apart sort of the good from the great entrepreneur is the ability to be self aware enough to know where your deficits are and to then sort of fill those deficits with the right resources. You know, let's start with Gary, your co founder. Talk to us a little bit about how you got to know Gary, you know, sort of how you see him complimenting the business and maybe a little bit more about his background as well.
1: Yeah. You know, Gary, it was interesting how I met him. I had worked at SRC for a number of years and my time there was interesting as I was often kind of siloed with some of my customers. But when I went to start Griffin, they said, Hey, we're going to give you this CFO named Gary Dominicos. And I was like, who is this guy? And they're like, oh, he's been here for years. He helped us, you know, stand up um, SRC Tech, which is the manufacturing side of it. And I was like, how do I not know this guy? But he's going to manage your books and, and manage your money and make sure you guys don't blow it all. <laughs> so, right. and I got to really like Gary's personality. He grew up in Syracuse as well. Life wasn't handed to him. He had to work hard for everything. He was actually the first in his family to go to college and put himself into business and finance and started off in the the sales of cars and managing books at auto dealerships before then he worked at a, a big company that did circuits, circuit board development, and then ultimately to SRC, SRC Tech and working with me. And what really makes him and I work so well together is we always make it fun you know no matter the good times the bad times we we make it enjoyable it's uh, building a business having people come and go in and out of your life it's never easy but gary and i compliment one another a lot I'll push things and and he's there to also put up the hand and say hey whoa we got to look at the dollars we got to pay attention you know and and it's really helpful we balance each other really well and his enthusiasm um, within hidden level he's known as gear bear (laughs) because he's just a a ray of kind of energy and positivity it's it it works really well the two of us together and our team
0: yeah could you imagine starting a company without a co-founder I mean there are there's sole founders but you know of. what's your perspective on that
1: Someone said this to me a long time ago, and I don't remember who, but uh, it's something I always say to people to take to heart. When you're starting a company, it's it's lonely at the top. A lot of decisions that you have to make Quickly. And when you're starting a company, I think a lot of people look at it and say, we're all friends, but there's business. And sometimes that can be difficult because there's business decisions that need to be made that may hurt friendships and some that may help friendships and bring on new ones. But having mm-hmm. a co founder and someone to have conversation with on those really great days and those really hard days,
0: I don't know how people would do that without a support team together. I think it is critical to sort of have those moments where you can divulge your deepest thoughts without judgment, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. difficult to do that to the board because your board's always in some respects overseeing Uh, and it's difficult to do that to your subordinates because your subordinates look up to you, you know, showing vulnerabilities to your subordinates is probably not the best leadership tactic. So having somebody that's sort of adjacent to you. Because it is stressful. You know, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, decisions and decisions that have to be made quickly. My, my grandfather always said, look, you know, in, in business, you don't have to be right every time. You just have to sort of make decisions and hope that you're right 51% of the time. Um, and there's a yep. lot of truth to the velocity of decision making and not worrying about always being right, but being nimble enough to sort of make changes and adjustments if you aren't right after a decision has been made.
1: We actually call it paralysis by analysis in our company. Yeah.
0: So um, we've shared with the audience what Hidden Level does at a high level, and we've gone through sort of a fascinating chronology of your career and who you are, which is I'm super grateful for. I want to look forward now because you have what I believe to be a unique vantage point into sort of where The next five or 10 years are going to sort of lead us with, you know, airborne security initiatives and sort of, you know, airborne activity. So you talked a little bit about the Jetsons, people flying on drones and drone delivery, but let's go sort of a layer more granularly. You know, what does the world need to look like for Hidden Level to be wildly successful, for the product market fit to be perfect? In other words, what are we going to see over the next five or 10 years? What should people that, that may not have as much visibility into tall or drone delivery or ground troop safety, what are we going to see over that time period?
1: Yeah, honestly, I think we're kind of hitting it right at the right moment. And really what's driving that is people's need and desire to kind of go faster and how technology has enabled people to do more. And, and need and want more rc planes have been around for years uh, and like i said i flew them as a little kid and they weren't something that everybody did because they were hard to fly but through the use of technology and autonomy people can now go buy a drone and have known nothing about flight and can fly a drone and get incredible pictures and do all kinds of cool things with them that now this has kind of opened up this business area of delivery and inspection and all kinds of things. And honestly, battery technology and the looking at integrating that into eVTOL, air taxis and you know our environment changing and the amount of cars on the road and people living in cities where they live five miles from each other, but it takes an hour plus to get there. There's a need and desire to change things. And that's really what that is, is We've taken up a lot of the use of space on the ground, but now we have this enabling the highways in the sky a great way to think about it. We have this air that's only been utilized primarily by general aviation and pilots for fun and helicopters, but now we can move product. We can put these very intelligent drones in the air to act as robots doing missions that are normally in some situations very unsafe when you're looking at like inspecting power lines and bridges to, I can go up to a rooftop and be on the other side of LA in a matter of 10 minutes it'd be much more efficient with time and much better about environmental impacts from sitting in cars that are burning gas and and just not moving on a highway and what we're looking to do through our product is basically enable and monitor those airways in the sky and through all of that comes a layer of safety and security That has to be accounted for at the same time.
0: I mean, for those listening in that aren't as familiar with this concept of drone delivery and eVTOL, maybe it's helpful to share some kind of examples of use cases. So let's start there. First, let's talk about drone delivery. What do you think the timing is going to be for drone delivery? What kind of use cases do you see coming sooner rather than later? And who do you think some of the players are going to be in that?
1: You know, people ask me this a lot and I'll I'll say, and it might shock people, but I think drone delivery is a harder mission than urban air mobility eVTOL. And I say that strictly because we have a lot of understanding of the type of Safety and reliability that needs to go into a craft that moves people, and there's a lot of parts and and whatnot that have been developed, whether that's transponders or engines, because of general aviation. Right. But now, when you move to a drone for drone delivery, a small form factor, they're talking about components and reliability that really hasn't been designed to date. Mm-hmm. So people are really pushing the limits right now to build craft that are more reliable and repeatable. But there is no process to have a drone really completely approved like there is right now where you see Joby, one of our partners, going through the air certification of their craft that's been around for years. There's a a clear requirement and process. There are processes now for drones, but they're just still not to the level that they are for aircraft that move people. Interesting. And that's actually why I think you'll see urban air mobility scale probably sooner than drone delivery. Hmm. I think... Where you're going to see drones really change the way we work is going to be a smaller step at first. It's going to be through the use of tools like Skydio's drones for our soldiers, or they're doing inspection in and around buildings where they're not really going very far. When we say beyond visual line of sight, they might be beyond visual line of sight down a smokestack, yeah. um, but they're not two miles away where I can't see it, or very small. Specific missions where you see hospitals maybe delivering organs or medicine between each other with a very strict flight corridor. You know, and, and in the side of that that business, you see a great deal of dollars from the likes of folks like Walmart, Amazon, Google going into this. Uh, USPS, UPS, really looking at everything from. I've seen mail trucks now that they are looking that would drive into a neighborhood, Yeah, the driver would get out, deliver a package to one house, and a drone delivers the package to the other house, and then they both meet back at the vehicle. You know, it's wild. Fascinating. There's so much that's going, but I think urban air mobility might scale a little faster only because it's closer and more relatable to the current general aviation market.
0: Yeah, I suspect there's also, you mentioned very specific routes that these vehicles, delivering organs, hospital to hospital, very specific route, people moving would be very specific routes as well presumably there'd be depots which reduces the complexity the sort of volume of traffic that needs to be attended to although there's always you know your system which plays sort of a big part in it is identifying rogue vehicles rogue traffic road obstacles it's interesting you know what about international do you have some visibility into sort of what's happening off the shores of the united states yeah Gatwick changed everything as far as
1: how drones were looked at and the impact they could have on not only air traffic but literally the bottom line. I mean, hmm. when Gatwick happened, a lot of people think about that shut down an airport. It actually shut down a city
0: in a lot of ways. Well, let's maybe take a step back and sort of, for those that are unfamiliar with it, talk a little bit about the kind of the, the facts that surfaced.
1: Yeah. So with the Gatwick incident, there was drone that was spotted by the airport, which ultimately caused them to stop flights. They were rerouting craft. And it was a really complex scenario where every time they would make an announcement that they were all clear, the drone would come back Mm -hmm. and they could not find it and never did find the pilot or the drone ever. They had drone detection technology too, but just nothing could see it. Interesting. They brought out the military and through that process, there was this concern around, well, who is this and what is this and what else could be happening? So it caused a a great deal of panic. And by doing that, the international industry has kind of, especially with COVID and how much that impacted flight, drone could just devastate an airport that's already running in the red due to the lack of travel with COVID. Right. So when we were actually uh, working in a program with the uh, ACI Airport Council International and AirPol, drone detection and dealing with drones around airport was at the top of their priority list mm-hmm. just because it could impact their bottom line. It's just an unrecoverable aspect. And then also there's a lot of folks on urban air mobility internationally, Singapore has really Agra. come out and said, we wanna make our city the first smart city. You see other countries even over in Saudi Arabia, uh, the NEOM program where they're saying they're going to be the first to have a smart city of the future. It's going to be interesting to, to really see what happens. The U.S., I believe, you know, my opinion has always had the safest airspace. I'm not saying that others aren't. They're all very, very safe. But the U.S. has always made those claims that they put a great deal into it. And it's one of the only federal managed. It's not privatized in any way, so a lot of people kind of have followed what the U.S. has done. But in this case, it's interesting. Drone use and urban air mobility internationally is going to be competitive to kind of see who gets there first, to be honest.
0: Yeah. There's talk of sort of terrestrial, you know, drone activity, you know, neuro-raised, I think, I don't remember the number, but hundreds of millions of dollars for their sort of terrestrial base delivery. Is there an opportunity for a hidden level in that market? And any sense for sort of the feasibility or sort of the conjunction of that and sort of airborne?
1: Potentially, I would say right now, our focus is the air side of it. There's a lot of things that have already been solved in that situation. And I'll say right now, with our current solution, we're not certain. However, we have one of the best sensor development teams in the world. And when it comes to eyes on a vehicle, you know, basically giving this vehicle the best possible vision to make the right decisions. We've actually had some conversations with some folks around building solutions that are very advanced because there's a lot of things that aren't accounted for when it comes to weather or dust or wind or all kinds of things that can change the performance of the systems that they might
0: utilize today. In the current air traffic management realm, these services are by and large sold to airports and Federal Aviation Authority for monitoring general aviation and commercial aviation. There has been this anticipation of this proliferation of other airborne vehicles and thus sort of the opportunity. But interestingly, thus far, not only have you guys had opportunity to sell into kind of where traditional air traffic management has been purchased, but you've been able to sell into sort of other opportunities on the commercial side and even on different other agency side. If you don't mind, Jeff, without divulging too much of the secret sauce, but talk about kind of how that's evolving. Like what are the commercial customers that you're talking with or selling to looking to accomplish with the hidden level system? So what honestly makes us so
1: unique in this business is not only our business model but it's the type of sensors we've developed that allow us to enable that business model so often in the past customers would buy a single detection system and then they'd own it but then you'd leave all the others needing that same data but you know you couldn't share it or the system didn't have the performance so we've developed really cutting-edge hardware that covers a vast amount of area like large coverage volumes over cities which allows us to enable all of the markets as you've just talked about which is really unique by selling our data as a service we have you know all the way kind of at the top you got your airport and kind of government users but this is actually an opportunity for us to enable a totally other parts of the market that you wouldn't even think of like residential users corporate campuses universities that have a great deal of concern about drones over their property whether that's for personal privacy high net wealth individuals who don't want to have paparazzi or potential threats on their families to industrial espionage and when you go talk to these entities, they need to know that where the drones are coming from and how far. And, but in the past, you'd say, oh, well, you need to buy a very expensive radar or thing. And, and they're like, whoa, I, can, I, don't, I don't know how to manage this. I don't know. I don't want to deal with this. Right. But now I can subscribe to the volume of space I need and the data that I need and integrate it right in to my security process. It's fantastic. In the past, like when we were at Griffin SRC building a million-dollar radar, I wasn't going and knocking on the residential neighborhood door and being like, you want to buy a million-dollar radar? Right. No. But I might use a million-dollar radar to cover an entire neighborhood, and now I can share the cost amongst everybody. So totally different.
0: It's great. Jeff, thank you for being on the podcast. What a fantastic conversation. Mm -hmm. We're looking forward to revisiting with you in the near future, tracking your success and that of Hidden Level. So thanks again, Jeff. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.